Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Reason. And the subtitle is that the man of reason is free from error. So this should be an attractive proposition to us, to be free from error. And the first thing we need to look at is, what is man in truth? And I'm going to quote from the Upanishads. They say that man is eternal, unborn, does not die, that he is indestructible, limitless, that his nature is consciousness, knowledge, and bliss, and that he is pure, perfect, and complete. Now, when we look at ourselves in the mirror on a Monday morning, these may not be the words that spring to mind. Very rarely, in fact, do we see ourselves in this way. However, all of us, I hope, will have tasted those rare moments where we are utterly content, that we experience completeness and perfect freedom and a sense of limitlessness. But they are only moments. And if the descriptions of the Upanishads are true, it would be reasonable that our lives should be lived in accordance with our true nature, not just that we experience it momentarily on rare occasions. And that it is practical and possible for each one of us to live this way. Now, there are two great aids which each human being has so that he can live this life of limitlessness or perfection. And they are reason and love. And they allow man to live in perfect harmony with his or her true nature. The Shankaracharya, the man who the school went to for its advice, had the following statement. He said, those who have love in their hearts and reason in their minds act in unison for they feed on bliss. Now that's not a bad diet, to feed on bliss. Well, if you have love in your heart and reason in your mind, you will feed on bliss. Tonight we're only going to look at reason, but it's important to understand that they're not exclusive, that a man of love is not without reason, and that a man of reason is not without love. In fact, the two go together, and one is not superior to the other, and in fact, they assist each other. So it's not true if we say, well, so-and-so is reasonable, but very cold, or so-and-so is full of love, but also irrational and unreliable. Well, what is reason? Reason is a power of the mind. And what does it do? It reveals truth from untruth, right from wrong, large from small. It actually holds perfection in the mind and then measures everything in relation to that perfection. So, for example, if I was to draw a circle and show you this circle, each one of you would be holding in mind the perfect circle and then you would evaluate the circle that I have drawn in relation to that perfect circle. 
So you'd say it's a good circle that I've drawn or a bad circle. But only because you know the perfect circle and hold it in mind. And this is what reason does. It gives the power of discrimination to the human being. And with discrimination, the human being enjoys choice. And because the human being has choice, it then has free will. Without reason, life will be full of doubt and error. Again, the Shankaracharya says, in the light of reason, the quality of action is much improved. Work will be completed with efficiency, full attention will be possible with detachment, and peace with bliss will be the gain all around. Well, imagine a life where you could not tell good from bad. How long would you last? Imagine if your mother couldn't have told good from bad. You wouldn't have lasted a week. So reason is essential for the human being. At its highest level, it unifies everything, showing everything to be one, and that peace and harmony reign everywhere. Now, love and reason are natural to the human being. But they need to be awakened. It's natural for the human being to walk. And the child ultimately has the capacity to walk. But initially, it cannot walk. Well, we have the capacity to reason because it is natural for us but we may not reason because it may not be awakened in us. It needs to be awakened and stabilized or naturalized. And this is done through good company and discipline. Good company inspires you to be reasonable and discipline gives you the strength to practice what you have been inspired about. Because reason is natural, it's easy and effortless, just like a smile. Any efforts we make to be reasonable, we might say, I find it very difficult to be reasonable, or I find it hard going to be reasonable. But those efforts are simply to unblock what is blocking the reason in us. Just as water will naturally find its way to the ocean, but if there's a dam there, it may stop the water from flowing. So one needs to unblock the water so that it will flow. All our efforts to be reasonable are simply to unblock what gets in the way of being reasonable. Again, because reason is natural, it's enjoyable. It's not a punishment to be a reasonable person. We are happy in ourselves when we are reasonable. We want to be reasonable, even if we're scared of its answers at times. If you call someone unreasonable, they just don't accept it. They will either stop what they're doing, or they'll protest and justify what they're doing, because nobody wants to appear unreasonable. Even the terrorist will justify his abominable acts and say there are always civilian casualties in war. Anything to justify the unreasonable. 
And thirdly, because reason is natural, it is always with you. So you are never without it. You cannot be separated from it, just as you cannot take the appleness out of an apple. You may not use reason, but you can never lose it. And it can be constant, because it is natural. Peace is natural, and you can always be at peace. Anger is not natural, and you cannot maintain anger all the time. Because reason is natural, you can always be reasonable. Now, why should you or I be reasonable? Well, there's only one way to be sure, and that's to be reasonable. Because what stands to reason is true. Otherwise, you're obliged to go on assumption or belief or imitation. As you are all adults, there will be many things that you believe to be true and you've subsequently turned, or they have subsequently turned out to be false. But reason gives you certainty. And there's always the danger of imitation. You can go to one of these meals where there's about four forks to the left of your plate and about five knives and you haven't a clue what you're supposed to do. So you look to the fool on your right and you eat as ignorantly as he does. And that's the danger with imitation. The idea is to subject everything to reason. And to be sure, to be free from error. But the main reason for reason is that it reveals the truth. It allows the man to fulfill his or her life. Truth liberates the human being. It liberates him or her from ignorance. And when liberated from ignorance, one can fulfill one's life. And if you fulfill your life, you will be blissfully happy. Thinking is mechanical. And reason is conscious. Feelings are mechanical. And love is conscious. Thus, if you are not reasonable, you are not conscious. Your life will be a mechanical life. And if it's a mechanical life, you'll be like a machine, just responding to stimuli. All the instruments of the human being, body, mind and heart, operate mechanically, unless reason or love comes to play. So if there's not reason in the human being, the body will always pursue pleasure and avoid pain. It has no choice about it. So if you can imagine a situation where there's a child trapped in a house on fire and there is no love or reason in the human being, so there's just a mechanical reaction, the body has to run away from the fire because it will always avoid pain. But if there was love in the heart, then it would be possible to transcend the pain or the aversion of the body and save the child. Or if there was reason in the mind, one could do likewise. So if one wants a conscious life, then reason is essential. Love and reason are food for the human being. 
and with food he or she grows and evolves. And it's a growth in consciousness. And with a growth in consciousness, one becomes reasonable. And with reason, then one has choice. And with conscious choice, then you've got freedom. And with freedom, you've bliss. Now, in order to be clear about reason, we need to be clear what is not reason. And logic is not reason. Logic starts from an initial premise, and then it is internally consistent with that initial premise. But just because it's logical, it doesn't mean it's true. Reason never assumes any premise. It makes no assumptions at all, but goes for the truth itself. And to give you an example of a sort of a logical statement, and Socrates showed this not to be true, he asked the gentleman, well, what is justice? And the man said, render unto every man his due. And that sounds absolutely logical. If something belongs to a man, you should give it to him. Well, Socrates said, well, say a man gave you his sword. Should you return it to him? And the man said, yes, of course you should. Well, let's say the man gives you the sword and he comes back to you two days later and he's in a ferocious humor and he says, I'm going to cut the head off my wife. Can you give me back my sword? Would you give him back the sword? If you knew the wife, you might. Uh, but as a man or a woman of reason, you wouldn't render unto him his due. Because it's logical, but not reasonable. The second thing that's not reason is that reason is not an excuse. So, when I lose my temper and I say, I'm only human, that's the reason I lost my temper. That is not reason. That's an excuse. It's not justification. I hit you because you hit me. If there's justification, then it's not reason. Also, reason is not personal. So when people say, the reason I lie in bed in the morning is because it's so pleasurable. That's not reason. That's just an idea. Reason is universal. So a mathematical example would be that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is reasonable because it's universal. 2 plus 2 equals 3 is personal. And it's unreasonable. Reason always leads to unity, not division. It's never for personal advantage. It's not used to promote loss for others or gain for oneself. So, for example, many years ago, the drink-driving laws, my understanding was it was possible to refuse to blow into the bag and instead you could offer a sample of blood. And there is a recorded case of one man who refused to blow into the bag and did offer a sample of his blood, but only from his big toe. And unfortunately, the doctor was not able to extract enough blood from his big toe, and therefore the man was acquitted. 
That's not reason. That's cunning. Now, if reason is natural and does lead to bliss, and we say, well, my life is not constantly blissful, then there is an inevitable conclusion. We're unreasonable. We live unreasonable lives. Well, if this is true, what is it that causes us to be unreasonable, if it's natural to be reasonable? And there are three aspects to the causes. One is false knowledge, the second one is desires, and the third one is a lack of willpower. And false knowledge is knowledge which we believe to be true. And if I can give you some examples of this, the first one is a sort of a Jack and Jill logic, i.e. if it's not Jack, it must be Jill. So if A is bad, then B must be good. And there's a tremendous amount of this around nowadays, that the good or the true is opposite to the bad. And to take two examples, there was a period in the Western world where emotions were suppressed. And it was discovered that this caused harm to the human being to suppress emotions. And using Jack and Jill logic, it was decided that it was good to express your emotions, since suppressing them was bad. And this is completely untrue. It is bad to suppress your anger, but it's not good to express it. If you express your anger, you simply develop the habit of being angry. The idea is to dissolve the anger. Another Jack and Jill sort of idea is we believe it's a good thing to be born. And with Jack and Jill logic then, it must be a bad thing to die. And you notice this whenever somebody's born, there's a great big celebration. And it's very rarely that there's a celebration when somebody dies. But how do you know it's bad to die? Socrates, who is said to be wise, didn't know. In fact, when he had to go to his death, he said, and now I must go, I to die, you to live. Which is better, God only knows. Jack and Jill logic is utterly mechanical. Reason is not the opposite of anything but truth itself. A second false idea which causes us to live unreasonable lives is that freedom is being able to do whatever I want to do. And this is completely false. If you take an example, let's say when young people move out of home and they move into an apartment and they normally share with anything between four and forty people, so they all pile into this apartment. And the idea is freedom is doing whatever I want to do. Within a couple of days, laws begin to emerge. Last one in turns out the lights. First one who wakes up, wakes up everybody else. You have to do the washing on the Monday and I'll do it on the Tuesday and somebody else does it on the Wednesday. Because it is understood that doing what you want to do is impossible in a social existence. The truth of the matter is 
that there is only freedom under the law. Wise law liberates. Another false piece of knowledge which is dominant today is that my rights become before my duties. It is an unknown event to see a crowd of people marching down O'Connell Street saying, my duty is. Everybody says, my right is to strike, to abort, to divorce, to whatever. But nobody says, my duty. And it is a fact that you can't claim your rights in a civilized society until you fulfill your duties. Another false idea which causes us to live an unreasonable life is an erroneous idea of rest. And this causes an ill-measured life. It's the idea that if I work at an insane level for the next 15 years, I'd be able to rest for the rest of my life. But this denies how the creation works. There is no rest in this creation. None at all. Jesus actually said it. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Because there's a law of entropy. Everything decays. One thing, I hate decorating. Not the actual decorating, but I hate when it's finished. Because within a couple of days, there's fingerprints I know there are cracks forming under the paint. I'd only have to wait another few weeks and they'll emerge. So I don't even get the perfection for a moment. As it dries, it begins to decay. It's also what my wife said about me when she married me. The next false idea is a false idea about where our happiness lies, or what determines our happiness. So we believe that things make me happy, and things make me sad, and some things make me angry. So people will say, the bus was late, and it made me angry. Well, if you examine the bus, you'll find that it has no capacity to make anybody angry, even if it is made by British Leyland. They don't make buses like that. All misery is self-created. But if you believe that things make you happy, then this belief will make you dependent on things. And if you are dependent on things, you will be afraid of losing them. And if you're afraid of losing them, you will feel the need to control them. And with control comes imprisonment or demands. The next false idea, again, which makes our lives unreasonable, is sentimentality or romanticism. And a sort of a cry that we must cater for the weak by watering down morals, religion and law. But there's a remarkable statement again from the Shankaracharya, and he says, call for change of natural laws comes from men of weak mind and character. There cannot be a law for the weak, 
for the weak law fails to prevail. It's like believing that if you make contraceptives available, you will get rid of teenage pregnancies. Just doesn't work. Or that if you weaken religion, you'll get more people religious. But weak religion ends up being no religion. The idea is to have true law and education strengthen people to be able to come under that law. So there's a number of ideas, or a lot more, but there's some of them. And we may find some of those ideas operating in us, and they will cause us to be unreasonable. The second aspect of becoming unreasonable is desires. Now, there are desires which are common to all, like food and drink, etc., and these are natural in measure and cause no problems. But then there are desires which are special to me. They're strong and personal, and nobody else really understands them. So people can become fixated about golf or football. And if you're also not equally fixated about the golf or football, you just can't understand why the other person is so upset. A friend of mine is a Manchester United maniac fan. That's why he's a friend of mine. <laughs> he found himself over in Europe to watch the final of the European Champions League. It was whatever, the 89th minute, and as you, you might remember, Manchester United were losing 1-0. And he said a prayer to God. He said, just give me two goals. All right? And it must have been a very sincere prayer, because as you know, God delivered two remarkable goals. And he had promised that he would go to Mass every Sunday for a year if God delivered the two goals. He told me this after the event, and about three or four months after the event, and I said, well, are you going to Mass every Sunday? And he said, absolutely. He said, you don't cross anybody who can deliver two goals in injury time. <laughs> now, for this man to go to Mass is actually a big sacrifice. It's not a natural discipline for him. And people don't understand that. But for him, it's absolutely reasonable. We won. <laughs> So, reason is overturned by desire. Out goes measure, values, honor, dignity. If you really desire that car park space and somebody else takes it, you can go berserk. Absolutely berserk. Because it means that you'll have to drive at least 20 yards down the road to the other car park space. When you are overcome by desire, it's not a response to events, but a crusade or a mission. And you will not let go. You'll sacrifice all to fulfill your desire. And there are three fundamental desires, and they are the desires for riches, fame, and pleasure. With desire, what is known to be true is cast aside. Having enjoyed whatever you desired, you may then immediately regret. 
as for example, if you happen to be on a diet and there's a need for you to be on a diet and you've been very good for a while now and you know, taking shape again, and then somebody puts a cream cake in front of you. Initially, there is the full knowledge, I should not eat this cream cake. But then desire arises. And it begins to manufacture justifications. It tells you things like, well, you haven't had one for a fortnight. You've been very good. <laughs> you, you deserve it. I will not eat anything for supper. That'll make up for eating the cake now. But you always eat supper. And you always know you eat supper. But desire is there. That cake is staring at you intently. And so, having now dislodged this true knowledge of not eating the cream cake, you begin to consume it. And it's a sheer delight. There's no regret as you're eating it. But with the last mouthful, <laughs> as it just plops into the rest of the little cream cake, you now realize, I shouldn't eat it. <laughs> I'm such a waste of space. Well, that's what desire does. It overturns reason. But having fulfilled the desire, you then have to live with the knowledge again, the reasonable knowledge again. The second aspect of desires is that it creates values in us. We think the values are true. And we live according to our values. But they are very, very rarely true. In fact, with values, we don't experience life in the forms of objects or events, but as values. So when somebody says miserable rain, they're not experiencing rain itself. They're experiencing a value. Their value. The misery is in the person. The rain is absolutely perfect. So, for example, you might have a farmer, and if there's a drought, and the rain comes, he thinks it's wonderful rain. And having celebrated the fact that his crop is going and he goes off on holidays to Ibiza or somewhere like that, and it now rains on his holidays, now it's miserable rain. Depends on the value held in the heart. If the values are untrue, then life is unreasonable. Whenever we see over or undervaluation by another, we say they're unreasonable. So if you see somebody going berserk over a golf shot, that's what you say. From a distance, but you say it. They're being unreasonable. Reason reveals the value of everything, the true value of everything, so that you're never fooled. Our values are not constant, but we always believe they're true at the time. So, when I'm five years of age, I think a plastic car toy is heaven. So when I get it, I'm full of joy. I bring it everywhere with me, to bed, it's there beside my cornflakes, everything. When I'm ten, I don't play with that stupid little car anymore, because I'm a big boy now. And let's say I'm playing with a CD. The only one produced by an unknown group it gives me a unique advantage over everybody else in the world. I have their CD. <laughs> I have now something I can talk about. Anyway, so I listen to this pathetic music for a while. 
And I believe this is really life, listening to this over and over again. But when I'm 15, I don't even know where the CD is. There's now a woman in my life. And this is what life's all about. And then when I'm 20, well, she's a part of my life, but she's not all of my life anymore. <laughs> now it's money, career, fame. And at 25, it's something else. 30, it's a house or an addition to the house. At 45, it's a comfortable chair. Because <laughs> I'm a little bit arthritic now and I don't like a draft anymore. It's my favorite chair. In fact, it's the only chair I like sitting in. <laughs> I also don't like anybody else sitting in. <laughs> Even when I'm not there. Because it is my chair. And the cushions are always different, you know, when I come back to sit in it the next time. But I always think my values are correct. I think it's absolutely reasonable to have that chair and to have exclusive use of it. I don't think I have to justify that to anybody. And this is the way it is. The third cause of our lives to be unreasonable is a lack of willpower or strength or character. We don't have enough strength to practice what we know to be true. So we know that biscuits are bad, but we have a weak hand. It always goes out for the biscuits. Or we know that smoking is bad for us, but we do smoke. And then we lie to ourselves. We say, I just have one biscuit. There is no such thing. There is one packet of biscuits, <laughs> but there is no such thing as one biscuit. And we say things like, I'm just going out for one pint. There's no such measure. <laughs> I'll be back in a half an hour. Nobody's ever come back in a half an hour. <laughs> I'll watch the film tonight and I'll get up early tomorrow morning and that's when I'll do the work, which I need to have ready for nine o'clock. I promise myself I'll do that. Well, the fool who promised that at night time is not there the next morning. He's a sleepy dope. <laughs> we believe we can leave late but still get on time. Maybe all the lights will be green. Maybe the other person will be late, and then I'd be an idiot having arrived on time. So these are the causes that make our lives unreasonable. Well, let's turn to reason itself. Reason is immediate illumination. It's not what we call reasoning, which is just a form of thinking. It is knowing absolutely everything all at once on the instant. Mozart, in one of his letters, gave a description of this, about writing his music. And he says, I do not hear the parts in succession, as it were, but I hear them all at once. What a delight this is, I cannot tell. So he would hear the entire symphony all at once. And you may have had those moments where you do see everything all at once. It might take you 15 minutes 
to explain what you saw, but you see it all at once. That's what true reason is. Without reason, you do not have the full picture. You need to know the perfect circle in order to know how bad or good the circle in front of you is. But reason itself doesn't do anything. It's only the beginning. It only reveals the truth to you. It gives you choice, but it doesn't dominate. So you can reject what reason says. But what's required is the decision to accept. And having decided to accept, what's required is then the practice of what you have accepted as true so that it becomes naturalized. Otherwise, it will be forgotten. And if you do naturalize what reason shows you, then you will not forget reason in the heat of the moment. Now, there are two levels of reason. There's lower reason and there's higher reason. And lower reason, we'll call it horizontal reason. And this is reasoning between two objects in the creation, or two aspects of the creation. So it's somebody saying to you, will you have an apple or an orange? And you reason that you will have the apple, that it's the best for you or whatever. So it's a horizontal reason between two objects. And you reason whether you should work or play or get out of the bed or stay in the bed. If you do practice reason in this area, well, then your life will be free from error. Your actions will be efficient. You'll be reliable. You'll have a measured life. You'll enjoy harmonious relationships. And you will have control and strength over your own being. But there is higher reason. And higher reason is not horizontal, but vertical. It's between the real and the unreal the source and the manifestation, the eternal and the transient, the unmoving and the moving, the stillness or the action, and the silence or the sound. It discriminates between the two. How often we miss the real, the stillness or the silence. So if I ask you, how often are you aware of the silence? always there. All sounds take place in the silence. But we normally only hear the sounds. If you really, really, really want to hear the sound, you have to hear the silence. Just like you need a still screen on which to project all the pictures. All sounds take place in silence all action takes place in stillness. If your life is one of ignorance, then you move from action to action to action. If somebody says, how was your day? You say, I did this, and then I did that, and then I did this, and then I did that. If you progress in consciousness, then you will say, well, I did this, and then I rested, and then I did that. And then I rested. And if you become totally reasonable, then all your actions will take place in rest. You'll never leave the rest for the action. We continually miss the substance. 
we value only the form. If I ask you, what is this? Most will say it's a ring. But it's not a ring. It's gold. The ring is only a form. And the gold is the substance. And the form has no substance at all. So, for example, let's say I had a piece of plasticine, and uh, I show it to you, and I say, what do I have here? You'll say plasticine. And let's say I make it into the shape of a doll. You might then say to me, I have a doll. But there's only the substance plasticine. The doll has no substance of its own. Otherwise, we would have doll substance and plasticine substance. But when I have plasticine in the form of a doll, I've only got one substance in my hand, but in the form of the doll. If something has no substance, it cannot satisfy. Higher reason reveals the substance, and that's why it satisfies. Higher reason dissolves the illusion. It allows you to see behind the roles to the true self. The roles are only qualifications on your true self. There is no such thing as husband or wife or employer or employee. These are just forms. But there's something behind the forms. And if I only know my wife as wife, I know very little of her. Because my wife is also sister to some people. She's mother to others. She's friend of others. And behind all those roles are something even more glorious still. So if I only know wife, and if I say I love my wife, then it must be partial. How often do you and I see the unqualified self? How often do we just see employer or employee or friend or wife or husband? Well, if you could see the unqualified self, you would see something much, much greater. Being unqualified, it's pure happiness. It's independent, it's eternal, unchanging, limitless, and conscious. When you see it in yourself, you will see it in others, and you will see it everywhere. And you will be free, blissful, wise, and limitless. Now, to make this practical, we need to understand when does reason operate? Because it obviously doesn't operate all the time. Well, there are three states of mind. And the first state is the state of stillness. And here the mind is clear, lucid, bright, perceptive, all these sort of things. The mind can also be active, and then it's full of desire, passion, thinking, busy with ends and means, planning. It has forebodings and anticipations. And the third state of the mind is the dull state of the mind. And this is where there is lethargy, heedlessness, apathy, selfishness, and fixation. Now, in the first state of the mind, the state of stillness, then there is certainty, because reason is operating. 
And this certainty is always correct and free from error. Because you see everything as it really is, your decisions do not change. Once made, you stick to them. And you stick to them because the truth cannot be changed, revised or improved. Your speech is not rehearsed because it's truthful. And you don't look back or worry because you're totally certain. If your mind is in the second state, the state of activity, then reason will not operate. Because in this state, the mind is filled with doubts. Decisions are revised because of doubt. They're checked and rechecked. You go to bed and suddenly the active mind says, did you lock the back door? And you're no longer certain. You have to get back out of the bed to check whether you've locked it or not. If you're really a doubtful person, you may have to get out two or three times before the mind will come to rest. Very, very, very doubtful people nail the door shut. <laughs> and then they sleep happily. In this active state, the mind changes with the mood and new data causes you to change your decisions. It's impulsive and rushed and unreasonable. In the third state of the mind, this dullness state, what you get is fixity. You get a certainty, but completely wrong certainty. And this is where you are convinced or convicted by your own convictions. So, you've um, put your pen down somewhere and you can't find it. And your wife says to you, why don't you look in the sitting room? And you say, I didn't leave it in the sitting room. And you won't look. And when she goes into the sitting room and finds your pen and hands it to you, you say, somebody must have put it there. <laughs> There's a conspiracy going on in this house to make me feel as if I'm going senile or something. With this fixity, you conceive of ways and means to be unreasonable or to break the law, just like the example of the man giving the blood from his toe. So only in stillness of mind does reason operate. Everybody wants to be fulfilled. Everybody wants to be blissful. And reason ensures this, and it operates in stillness. You don't do reason. It simply operates when the mind is still. It reveals what is known, and it reveals the truth. So how is reason to grow in us? Well, our minds need to become still. If I say to you, for a minute, I want you not to think, can you do it? Well, I'll answer for you, you can't. You can't make the mind not think for a minute. If you say to the mind, do not worry, does it obey you? If you say, be happy, does it obey you? We are not in control of our own minds, and it will not be still for us. So, if we are to be reasonable, we have to find a way for the mind to grow to be still. And there are four factors. And the first is good company. 
And good company is not just people, but it's the thoughts you allow to occupy your mind and the feelings you allow to occupy your mind. It's what you read. It's what you listen to. It's all these things and the people that you hang around with. There are some people that you notice when you're in their company, you become agitated. And there are other people, when you're in their company, you're very still and at peace with yourself. So, for each one of us, there is that company which is helpful to us becoming still. The second thing is the study of scripture and words of the wise. Because these are people who have perfected reason or stillness. And we should study how they have done it. The third thing is meditation. There is no greater technique available to the human being to bring stillness of mind than meditation. It dissolves the dullness and it dissolves all the activity and allows the mind to be still. And the fourth thing is that you must ask questions. You must always ask questions. You neither accept nor reject and you examine all assumptions by which your life is being ruled. So you subject everything to reason. And in this way, you will eliminate false thinking. You challenge everything, not as an adversary, but as an earnest inquirer into truth itself. Meditation brings stillness to the mind, good company, study of scriptures, and self-analysis clean out the mind. When the mental world is cleaned out, you're ultimately left with a single question. Who or what am I in truth? And when you answer this question, everything falls into place. There is immediate illumination. Reason is perfected. And once awakened, all will be clear and bright. All questions are answered. All doubts fall away. All that is unuseful in your being and not helpful to your happiness simply falls away. Your self within is satisfied and the glory of your true self shines through. Man in truth is consciousness, knowledge and bliss. He is pure, perfect and complete. And man is given reason so that he may evolve in consciousness and discover this truth about himself. So be reasonable and discover the truth about yourself. It's worth it. And that's the end of the talk. Thank you. What would you like to ask? It's a sort of a technical question following your talk. You mentioned about working for 15 years frantically in the hope that there'll be rest afterwards. And I thought I heard you rightly when you said that there's no such thing as rest, which caught me completely by surprise. Surely there has to be a thing called rest. All right. But what was actually said was that there was no rest in the creation. 
everything in the creation is eternally moving. It has to. It's either growing, maturing, or decaying. So there is no rest in the creation. There's only one thing still that doesn't move, and that's consciousness or spirit or self. So the only absolute rest is in consciousness. But consciousness is not in the creation. So there is rest oh, yes. in oh, the yes. moment. Oh, well, we should slash our throats if there wasn't rest. But there's no rest in the creation. If you think that you can, as I said, you know, make money, accumulate it, and then sit back and rest for the rest of your life, it's not like that. The creation will keep you moving. It's like people often will say something like, I just like to rest in bed. And so they stay on for a prolonged period of time. But you start to get irritable after a while. The sheets are beginning to stick to you at this stage. And then you decide, I have to get out of this thing. Creation will make you move. But it is possible to work frantically for 15 years in the midst of rest. Well, the word frantic is unfortunate. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be frantic. It would always be with measure. That doesn't mean it wouldn't be at immense speed, but it would always be measured. So, well, hopefully, when Michael Schumacher, for example, is driving a car, he's driving it at immense speed, but it is a measured speed. While the car can do, let's say, 200 miles an hour in the straight, he doesn't do 200 miles when he's coming to the hairpin. It then requires to be taken at 40 or 60 or 80 or whatever. So it always needs to be measured. But the measured may be very, very fast. But it's never, frantic is an unfortunate word. There can be rest in that measure. Absolutely. But the rest is in yourself. The body will be moving, but you're at rest. Let's take it like this. Let's say ordinarily, when you're walking, not striding to somewhere or later in that, but you're walking, you're at rest in yourself and the body is in movement. But take another occasion when uh, I ask you to participate in a fashion show and I say to you, I'd like you to wear some clothes in this fashion show and I want you just to walk as you ordinarily do, but up and down this walkway. Well, there won't be rest in that walking because you'll be trying to create an image perhaps or look elegant, all these sort of impossible things. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Does that make sense? Very much so. So, yeah. what happens is, when this identification with myself falls away, there is rest. But when this ego is active and looking out through the eyes and saying, what does he or she think of me and am I impressive and I want to get there on time, then there's no rest. So rest is in the self, not in the creation. It is possible to rest even when you're busy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's the point. Yes, the exactly. All right. I'd like to think, Shane, that I'm a, a man of reason and that I'm free from error. Very good. But my daughter this regards idea. herself as a person of reason and also free from error. So, therefore, we don't always agree. Now, leaving me and my daughter out of the story, I think this happens throughout the world, that two people consider themselves to be reasonable, to be seeking the truth, and still they are poles apart. So I suppose the question maybe is, what is truth? 
Yes. In the situation of naked father and daughter, there are perhaps four possibilities. Oh, no, three possibilities. You're both wrong, which is the most likely possibility. <laughs> uh, you're right and she's wrong, or she's right and you're wrong. Now, it's impossible to say what truth is because you would have to encompass it or limit it in words, but to give you a sense of it. Under the laws of mathematics, the true answer for two and two is four. That is the true answer. It's a universal answer. It's not a personal answer. There are no differences of opinion about it. It doesn't make any difference whether you agree with it or not. Two and two is four. It is independent of the being saved. Two plus two is three. doesn't have those qualities. The answer three originates in the person. The answer four doesn't. It originates in mathematics itself. And so that would give you a sense. The truth is independent of the person who's speaking it. A person speaking the truth is not the originator of truth, but is more a medium through which truth is spoken. Truth is unchanging. So it's not true on a Monday and not true on a Tuesday. It's unchanging. It doesn't mean that it will always be applied in the same way. So, for example, if you were to take the commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself, this doesn't always mean that you wrap your arms around the person and give them a kiss on both cheeks. When Germany went to war in the Second World War for the Allies to defend the innocent nations, that was love thy neighbor as thyself. They brought Germany to submission then they helped to rebuild Germany. That was also love thy neighbor as thyself. So love thy neighbor as thyself may necessitate attacking someone, and it may also necessitate rebuilding them. It's a constant, but its application is unique to the situation. And the truth is not a fixity, but a constant. But to try and define it more than that would be really to limit it. It can't really be expressed in words because it's beyond words. It's independent of words. Does that help in any way? Yes, thank you. Except my daughter, we don't discuss mathematics in those uh, arguments. Yes. <laughs> but it, it is interesting that you mentioned the war that both sides and people in both sides regard themselves as being reasonable and being truthful, and still they finish up in this horrific mess. And but, I mean, it's happening at the moment as well. It's that, a question of, you know, what is truth? And I suppose it is the question, really, that has to be tackled. Absolutely. Man has the capacity to lie to himself. He can do that, and he can convince himself by his lies. It's a remarkable achievement, but he can do it. And so a person can justify or lie to themselves so that the unreasonable appears reasonable to them. To take it at a very, well, not a mundane example, but a much lesser example than war, the anorexic will lie to themselves about their appearance. They can do that. They can say, this is attractive. 
a drunken man can think he's making absolute sense. I'm sure you're not drunk when you're talking to your daughter. But a drunken man can think he's making absolute sense, and a man in a rage can think he's making absolute sense and he's totally reasonable. You'll only know in stillness. I've told this story many times, but perhaps since you've asked the question, it might be useful. It's only in that stillness that reason will operate. And as I said, it gives you a complete picture. For the first 15 years or so of the marriage, every time there was a good-looking woman in my presence, I would stare at her. Not glance, but stare. And if my wife was also in my company, she would make the normal retorts that you would get from a wife, like, why are you doing this, and stop. There would be no stillness here at all. And what there would be would be mechanical responses or reactions, like, I'm a man, or, which is some pathetic entity, obviously, and uh, <laughs> I'm only looking, or it makes no difference. Now, they're utterly mechanical, unreasonable statements. But one day, I was driving the car, and she was uh, in the passenger seat, and there was this delightful-looking lady walking down the road, and I looked at her. And my wife said to me, every time you look at a good-looking woman, it hurts me. Now, there must have been some stillness here, because it was hard. It was hard. I'm hurting my wife. And like, as was said in the talk, there was an immediate, complete picture. And the picture was, like, all at once now, even though I'll take a minute or so to say it. But what I saw, I saw myself walking down the street with my wife, holding her hand. And erroneously, I was holding it too tight so that I was hurting her. And she said to me, you're hurting my hand. And I asked myself in that moment that if she told me I was hurting her hand, could I continue to hurt her hand consciously? And the answer was no. Why would I do that to my wife? Why would I inflict pain on her knowing? And so I knew that I couldn't inflict pain on my wife knowingly. And she had just told me that every time I looked at a good look another good-looking woman, <laughs> I've also done a charm course, by the way, <laughs> that it hurt her. It was absolutely reasonable at that point in time that I should stop. But the interesting thing is this, is for 15 years of marriage, there's a habit which I absolutely believe I can't control. And in an instant, one knows. And that's what reason does. It gives you such authority over your being. You can overcome anything in an instant. You don't have to go through withdrawal symptoms. Right? <laughs> Once the mind surrenders to reason, you are rock-like. Thank you, Shane, and thanks also for an excellent lecture. Thank you. Yes. Thanks very much. You've raised loads of questions in my mind, and I'd like to throw some out to you. Very good. There's no onus on you to answer them. Is reason the same soul? And if not, does reason reside in the soul? And are the enemies of reason, which you were talking about, would they, if it is soul or connected with soul, are they sin? 
All right. Have you got two weeks? <laughs> well, first of all, it depends what you mean by so, rather than spend an hour trying to define it. If we assume that by so you mean the essence, or the source, or the, the very center of humanity, and something which is divine in its origins and perfect originally, then reason is not the soul, but a facility of the soul, or spirit, or self. Now let's just use the word soul since you've used the word soul. The soul has two great facilities. They come from God. One is to love, because God is love, and the other is to reason, because God is wisdom. So the human being has these two tremendous facilities. They're not the soul itself, but they are facilities of the soul. So that's the first thing. The enemy of the soul, if you want to put it like that, is the ego. It's a false image of yourself. It is thinking yourself to be your body. It's thinking yourself to be young or old or good-looking or ugly or fat or slim. These are qualities of the body. There's no such thing as a fat soul. Right? The ego sometimes doesn't identify with the body, it identifies with the mind. It says, I'm intelligent, I'm stupid, I'm very clear about this, or I'm very confused. These are not qualities of the soul, they're qualities of the mind. Or maybe the heart, I am joyous, or I'm miserable, or I am broken-hearted, or open-hearted. These are not qualities of the soul, but qualities of the heart. So the ego identifies with the instrument. I bought what would be classified as a very big car. And I really enjoyed driving around in that very big car. As cars do, it had to go to the garage to be repaired. And they gave me a tiny little car to drive around in. And I was very uncomfortable in that. Because I'm a big car guy. <laughs> and if people see me in this little car, they might think I'm a little car guy. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> so, so for a couple of days, it was sort of, you know, mild consideration of wearing dark glasses and a blonde beard <laughs> in case somebody might think that I was this sort of little car guy. Now, that is identifying with a car, and it's awfully ludicrous to identify with a car, to think that what your car is, is something to do with you. But we do it with the body, mind, and heart. And this is the enemy. So the idea is to find out who you are. And you have tremendous instructions from the scriptures, whether they be from the East or the West. But just to take Christianity, which we're most familiar with, we have two great statements that indicate what we are. I think it's in the Old Testament that says that man is made in the image of God. Do you think God's fat? So what is this image? What are its qualities? And you won't find it are the qualities of the body, the mind, or the heart. They're divine qualities. And the other one within Christianity, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that was an instruction that Christ gave to the disciples and they have passed it on uh, to all Christians. Now, this body is never going to be perfect. It ain't perfect now, it never was, and it has no chance of being perfect in the future. This mind is also not perfect. It wanders and it gets confused and it has doubts and all sorts of things. And this heart is also not perfect. 
And it can't be. There's nothing I can do to make it perfect. So either Christ left an impossible message or he was referring to something else. When he said, be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, he was calling me, not my body, or not my mind, or not my heart, but something else. Liberation is in discovering who you are in truth. And when you discover who you are in truth, the ego moves away. It just dissolves, and you're free. And reason will help dissolve the ego, and so will love. Either will do it. Say you love someone. Your attention is naturally off yourself and onto them. So the ego doesn't operate. There's just total consideration of the other. And reason will also dissolve the ego. Let's say I said to you, do any of you have bad habits which are not helpful to you? So do you find yourself worrying about things? Or something like that. And you might all say, yes, I do worry. And if I say to you, does it bring you happiness? You might say to me, no, it doesn't bring me happiness. And then I would say to you, well, why not stop it? If it doesn't bring you happiness, why do you do it? Well, if you could appeal to reason, you would stop in an instant. You could be an habitual warrior for 50 years, and you would stop on the instant. Say you say to me, you're thirsty. And I say, well, would you like a glass of arsenic? And you say no. And I say, look, it's a, it's a nice, pretty color. Trust me. You say, no, I don't care what the color is. I'm not drinking the arsenic. And if I say, well, look, it's smooth tasting. You say, I still don't care. I say, it's initially pleasant. Don't worry about the long-term effects. <laughs> <laughs> you say, I don't care what you say. I'm not drinking the arsenic. If I say to you, is that a result of an amazing discipline you've been practicing all your life? You say, no. Is the result of absolute certitude that arsenic is bad for me. If you could come to the same certitude that worrying is unhelpful to your happiness, you'd stop immediately. So reason will make the weak person absolutely strong. You can overcome anything in your nature which is not helpful to you with reason. And on the instant. You can overcome grief in an instant or anything you ever suffer, with reason. So I, I don't know if that helps, answer. Yes. You spoke about reason occurring in moments of stillness. Another aspect that comes into sort of moments of stillness sometimes is intuition. How does that relate to reason? Well, you could call intuition reason. When you have those moments of reason, you see everything all at once. The explanation comes later. You know with certainty. And if somebody said to you, well, what did you see? As you're saying it to them, you now understand what you saw. And intuition is very much like that. So you call it the same thing? Yes. Okay. We tend to think of reasoning as some sort of process, a bit like doing geometry, where you start off and you eventually come down to the end and say QED. Real reason is not like that. It's the light going on and seeing everything at once. I'd like to ask you about what you said with regard to feeling. You talked about suppression and expression. My understanding would agree with yours that expression of feeling doesn't 
get rid of it. But you talked about dissolving it. How would you describe a process of dissolving feelings, very strong feelings, for example, such as anger or, you know, equally, you know, other ones not as aggressive or whatever? That's the first thing. And the second thing you said, you can, with reason, dissolve things in an instant like grief. Would you agree that if the same feeling comes up again, that you must continually dissolve it in the instant? It won't be gone forever. Oh, well, it can be. If you get the root, it's gone forever. But we'll deal with your first question first, which I think has gone from my mind. Uh, how to integrate or dissolve oh, yeah. feelings. In, like, yes, absolutely. Well, very simply, let's say, I'll just take a very mundane example. You're trying to get to the airport on time, and you find yourself in a traffic jam. It has been known for anger to arise, and you can be you know, mouthing all sorts of things to yourself. Now, if reason enters the mind, it will say to you, being angry will not get me to the airport one second earlier. Anger does not move traffic. And if you see that all you're doing is punishing yourself by being angry, then you can stop being angry in an instant. Has that ever happened? Uh, yes, I have experienced so that. So reason will do that. Reason can dissolve anger in an instant. Yes, now, but that particular feeling was an instant reaction. What yes. about more deep-rooted feelings? A long-term one. Yes. Right. There's no problem. It's the same thing. I'm going to give you... It's to cigarette smoking, but it's not the all-time sin of humanity to smoke cigarettes, but it, you get a sense of the addiction to it and over a long period of time. Well, there's a man in the school. He had given up cigarettes about 40 times, but unfortunately he'd taken them up 41 times, so he was still smoking. Somebody gave him a book, and I just can't remember the name of the book. But in the book, the man told a story, the writer of the book told the story. The story was about a man who one day woke up and found a pimple on his face. This distressed him a bit, and a friend said to him, I have a cream that can get rid of this pimple. So the friend gave the pimpled man the cream, and sure enough, when he put it on his cheek, the pimple went on the instant. Immediate cure. But the next day when he woke up, there were two pimples there. All right. So he took some more of his magic cream, and he applied it, and absolutely instantly, both pimples went. But the next morning, there were four pimples there. So then he got more of the cream and he applied it, and every time he applied it, the pimples went on the instant. But they kept getting worse and worse and worse. At this stage, he used to have a little suitcase full of this cream, which he'd bring with him everywhere, because the pimples would just emerge from nowhere. But every time he applied it, they all disappeared. We now have this, you know, six-foot acneed entity wandering the earth. Another friend comes up to him and he says, you know something? The cream causes the pimples. That's what's causing the pimples. What would you do with that cream? You would throw it away on the instant. What the man in the book said, cigarettes cause the desire for cigarettes. Every time you have the cigarette, your desire for the cigarette is gone. But then you've now got a stronger desire for more cigarettes. And I said to the man, have you stopped smoking? He said, how could you continue to smoke 
what you've heard of. He gave it up on the instant. Because the reasonableness of it was so self-evident. Now, he tried everything. There's still sort of marks where the nicotine patches used to go. But he is now a cigarette-free environment. And that's what reason can do. It can do anything. It's all-powerful, so no habit can withstand it. So whether it's anger or cigarettes or grief or something you've never forgiven somebody for or anything like that, makes no difference. It can be overcome if reason operates. Now, I think your second one was about it coming back again. But there are times you can dissolve it and it never, ever, ever comes back. And you've got the root for it. There are other times that doesn't happen and sure enough it appears and you have to apply reason a second time or a third time. But if it is the purest and the highest reason, it goes on the instant. So. Well, it's just that um, I know what you're saying, but like, if a strong feeling comes, it would seem to me, okay, instead of lashing out at somebody or expressing it in a, an ineffective way, it'll still be there. But if you, first of all, acknowledge the feeling that's there and actually let it be felt in your body or whatever way, within yourself, until it dissolves itself. I, I just think that there is a process that you must go through, you know. Yes, well, I understand you think there's a process, but reason eliminates the need for a process. Well, the way you described it, it sounds to me as though the reason was actually suppressing it rather than letting it be felt. Oh, no. No, it dissolves it. Dissolves it on the inside. Sorry? If feelings arise and but they're, you can dissolve felt, them. they're suppressed. No, but you can dissolve them. Well, you must acknowledge that it's there in the first place. Well, you don't have to worry about all of that. You dissolve it on the instant. What a feeling is, is a concentration of the heart onto a particular point. It's a tension in the heart, or the emotional world. All you have to do is relax it. It goes on the instant. Yeah, well, maybe it's just a different way of expressing it, but relaxing it to me would mean letting it be felt rather than tensing up and, and suppressing it, just letting it be. No, it's not letting it be, because otherwise then it will run its course. It's actually dissolving it on the instant. But if you're a conscious person, you will be conscious of it being there and arising in the first place. So that's what I mean by acknowledging it, I suppose, just being conscious. All right. How long are you going to do this acknowledging thing? Well, I think that... No, I, I don't think it has to go on for days or weeks or... How about a nanosecond? No, I think that if you, in the moment, acknowledge it, that it will automatically change into something else. No, but I'm saying it, it can go on the instant. On the instant. It doesn't have to stay any length of time. It doesn't have to transform into something else. It doesn't have to become milder. It can go on the instant. You're forcing me to tell a story I've told about a million times, but I'm going to tell it again then, all right? When I was young, I had a girlfriend that I felt very strongly for, and she died in a car crash, and it broke my heart at the time. So I grieved. And if I compare my grief to what other people say grief is, I think I grieved as much as they did. So I didn't want to live. I endangered my life on a few occasions just to see, could I bring an early death? All sorts of things. And this is going on for months. And I'm sitting down in a chair one day, rocking in the chair, wishing that I could die, that this would be released from this grief. 
And so I'm rocking away. And as I'm rocking away, my eyes suddenly fall down to my chest, and I see it expanding and contracting as I'm taking the breath in and out. And I ask myself, if I'm so interested in death, why am I breathing so easily? Because this breath is actually giving life to the body. And then for some reason my head turned to the left, and there's a kitchen table there, and on the kitchen table there was a cereal bowl with some cereal in it, and there were three cereal boxes. And I had been eating from that cereal bowl, and the remnants of the cereal were there, and it was my favorite cereal of the three. And I asked the question, if I hate life so much and I want to die, why did I pick my favorite cereal? And the answer came back was because I loved life, and I got out of the chair and never grieved again. Ever again. Whoever has died since. No grief. That's reason. Thank you. Yes. Can I just, following on from that question, and you say, you know, dissolving moments in an instance, take the example you had of getting angry in the car. In that moment of reason, you can say to yourself, there's no point in this. But there's also habit, or, you know, you said earlier, your mind, you can't always control your mind. How do they relate, if you like? Well, full reason will dissolve the habit. If it's not full reason, the habit will still remain alive and represent itself. You may temporarily hold it at bay, but it will come back. But if it's full reason, it will go on the instant. I'm going to have to give you another cigarette story. A lady came up to me years ago, and she was smoking something like 40 cigarettes a day. She said to me that she tried very, very hard to give up cigarettes. And did the philosophy school have anything to say about how to give up cigarettes? <laughs> she obviously had a very broad view of the function of the school of philosophy. And I said, to her, well, I didn't have any knowledge about giving up cigarettes since I hadn't taken them up in the first place. But I had heard a man say to me once that when you see that smoking cigarettes is a complete and utter waste of time, you will give them up just like that. And as I finished the sentence, somebody interrupted me, and I began to speak to them. And I didn't speak to the lady again. Anyway, about three or four months, or maybe six months later, she met me again. And she came up to me. She said to me, I gave up cigarettes. I couldn't remember who she was, and I said, that's very interesting. She said, I just want to tell you, when you said to me, when you realize that cigarettes are a complete and utter waste of time, you will give them up just like that. She said, I realized they were a complete and utter waste of time, and I gave them up just like that. So the habit was completely dissolved in an instant. Now, what these questions show, with no insult to the audience, is that we don't really experience the highest reason. We don't have enough experience of it to see its full power. But if we did, we would marvel at it. We would marvel that we, as human beings, have the capacity to reason. We're always in search of happiness. And we have two great aids to find this happiness. Reason in the mind and love in the heart. And they will bring us to happiness if we use them. So we have to use reason 
It has to be awakened in us. It's lying there dormant, unused. If the mind becomes still, you will find that reason begins to operate. And it will grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And you'll find that where you have maybe taught in the past that you've been overpowered by habit, you will find immense strength. Immense. So, there's somebody else. A very interesting lecture, thank you. Could I just ask you about stillness and movement at the same time and how you can strengthen and develop your experience of stillness as you are actually living, being, acting? I understand. I understand. Yes. Do you type at all? I do, yes. Right. Okay. Do you remember, say, when you were learning to type, there would have been a strong identification that these fingers are typing. And that would have led to a lot of movement in the mind and concern about are the fingers going on to the right point. But as the facility to type grew, a certain confidence would have emerged and a detachment. And you would have let the fingers do the typing. You let them do the typing. You're not saying, get over the queue or whatever. You just let them do it. And they do it. This is the key. When somebody asks you a question, whether it be in a talk like this or anywhere else, let your lower jaw drop and let the words pour out. Don't try and talk to them. Just let speech flow. Let your body walk. Let your hands move. But remain absolutely still yourself. You're not the body, you're not the mind, and you're not the heart. If your false self gets out of the way, they operate beautifully, absolutely beautifully. And you let them, and you watch them as a witness, an unmoving witness. And if that's the case, the mind becomes absolutely still. And in that context, how do you remain involved in the situation that you're in without actually giving the impression of being detached or yes. remote from whatever you're dealing with? A cave dweller. Yes, all right. <laughs> the body, mind, and heart will participate absolutely fully in the creation. When you're attached, you get in the way. Let's say I say to you, okay, I want you to come up here, and I want you to be witty. The pressure, the identification, God, how am I going to get a witty statement out, would cause you to be absolutely unfunny. Did you ever try and be nice to someone? You know when you were a kid and your mother said, now be nice to your Aunt Nellie. <laughs> you know, after about a half an hour with Aunt Nellie, you began to believe in euthanasia. <laughs> because you were trying. But when you stand back, when you stand back, then these instruments work beautifully. So, if you're a mother or a father and your child cries, the heart naturally responds. And its intelligence, the heart has this wonderful love intelligence, will allow you to care for the child. And the mind will reveal what it knows without you pushing it or doing anything to it. It just will. As regards questions and answers, you don't have to have answers to answer the question. You only have to receive the question. 
If you receive the question, the answer is drawn out of you. You don't have to have a store of them. It's not like that. The question draws them out. It's one of the tragedies of exams, that everybody thinks the question is on the paper and the answer's in my head. The answer's in the question. Don't look in there for an answer. You find it in the question. So, that's what happens. You'll find that with this detachment, there will be far greater connection or presence of being. And with that greater connection, there will be full response, a measured response, an appropriate response to the needs of the moment. So if there's a need to walk, you walk. If there's a need to say something, you'll say it. If there's a need to respond with compassion to an event, it will naturally arise. But you yourself can remain as the witness of all. So, thank you. Yes, anybody else? Shane, I just wanted to ask you about reason. When you're in the rocking chair and when you're in the car, you had a moment of reason, but how do you attain that moment? I feel as if it's a discipline that I'm going to have to practice attaining reason. But for you, how did it come yes. to you? Let's say I said to everybody in this room, now, I want you all to be reasonable for the next five minutes. It's not possible. You don't try and do reason. All you do is try and create the state in which reason arises naturally. So let's say you're a gardener. You can't grow the plant. You don't get a plant and sort of stretch it like this. What you do is you try and create an environment in which the plant will naturally grow. So you water it and fertilize it and all sorts of things like that. And if you do provide a natural environment, then the plant will grow. So the key to reason is stillness of mind. Then it will simply happen. You're not able to call on it, but you won't need to call on it, because it will just happen. It becomes naturalized. Say smiling. You don't have 2,000 smiles stuffed away somewhere, and every time somebody says something funny, you release one. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to practice smiling. It's natural. And when something hits the mind or the heart and you find it entertaining, the smile comes to meet it. Well, reason will arise to meet the moment in stillness. So, you have to create stillness in mind. So, you take things like you find that anger doesn't create stillness, and jealousy doesn't, and envy doesn't, and all these things. Love does make you still. Passion doesn't, but love does you'll find that there are certain literature or certain programs you watch and they either fill your mind full of fear or they allow you to be at rest. Even at a physical level, there are certain food which makes you lethargic or very active and there's other food which leaves the body very naturally at rest. What you and I require is a diet for the body, mind and heart. And we need to feed the body, mind and heart with that food which is productive of health, stillness, and peace in the heart. And that's all you have to do, and then it will happen of its own accord. So that's the fundamental thing. Meditation as a technique is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. It transforms the subtle world. And to give you a sense of its need, if I said to you, if you didn't wash the body, 
after a very short period of time, you would find yourself living alone. But you'd also probably be suffering from ill health as the germs took over. So because you use the body in the creation, it takes up dirt and therefore needs to be cleansed. Now, you also use your mind and your heart every day. And it takes up dirt. It takes up images and sounds and gossip and ideas and worries and fears. And they rest there. But if I say to you, do you wash your mind and heart regularly? You might say, well, I just rest it regularly, so I bring it to bed. But if you bring a dirty body to bed, it'll be dirty the next morning. If you bring a dirty mind and heart to bed, it'll be also be dirty the next morning. You have to find a way to clean the mind and the heart. And meditation is the all-time cleaner of mind and heart. Whatever has attached itself to the mind in the forms of habits and to the heart in the forms of negative emotions, meditation allows all that to be let go. And it just falls away. So meditation is excellent. The other thing, then, is if you read scripture or the words of the wise, what you get is pronouncements of great principle, like love thy neighbor as thyself, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you're happy with the truthfulness of them, and you adopt them, and you practice them, you will find they're all conducive to stillness and peace. So it is very, very good to study the wise. That will do it all. But reasoning yourself, you can't really do anything about it. Thank you. Okay. Yes, anybody else? So, with this man here. Like, how long will all that take? <laughs> like, <laughs> if you really want it, in an instant. In an instant. It's available on the instant. I.e., you and I can be absolutely reasonable right now. If we want to in the ordinary run of events, it takes a long time to develop, but it can be had on the instant. The greatest thing to have is earnestness, to really want it. There's a man called Swami Vivekananda, who's now dead, and he was a disciple of Ramakrishna. He had heard that Ramakrishna had seen God. Swami Vivekananda went to Ramakrishna and he said, I'd like to see God too. So Ramakrishna said, all right, come with me. Or I think he said to him, how may I see God? And Ramakrishna said, okay, come with me. And he brought him to a lake and they stood in the lake up to their waist. And Ramakrishna grabbed him from behind and stuck his head under the water. And he kept him down there for about two minutes. So when he came out, his eyes were bulging, his tongue was hanging out and he was gasping for air. And he said, when you wish to see God with the same intensity, you will. So, you can't say, look, I've got a passing interest in being reasonable. <laughs> if you really, really, really want it, you'll have it like that. But it doesn't seem to be common. It seems to be a process. Or not a process, sorry, an unfolding. It's a bit like, say we had neglected brass or something like that. So it's now lost all its shine. And you start to shine. And the first time you spend 15 minutes, it's not as dull as it was, but it's not fully shining. And then you go back to the next day. And each day, you remove a bit of the covering. And then one day, it shines in its own perfection. 
it seems that this is the way we approach it. So what you should do, if that is the way you will approach it, what you do is you work with that which is obviously unreasonable in your life. Obviously unreasonable. They're the easy things. And you stop practicing them. You begin to let them go. And as you let those go, other aspects of your being which are unreasonable will begin to reveal themselves. You let those go. And the light will begin to shine through. And then what happens is that reason visits you. You get these magic moments. Just like the moment in the chair. You'll have these moments again and again and again. Uncalled for. Amazing moments when you know the truth about everything. Then you now know of the certainty of the power of reason. And then you're only left with one last thing to do to make it constant. But what you have is the certainty, and that gives you great courage to go forward. Yes, is there somebody over here? All out of reason, huh? What should be our, our reaction to very unreasonable events? And I'm, I'm thinking of what's going on in the world. I mean, I, I consider myself a reasonable person, but I don't know how I should react to what's going on. Right. Well, let's say you had a child and they were hungry. How should you react to their hunger? Feed them. Feed them with food, all right. Let's say the last couple of days we've seen you know, manifestations of hatred or great ignorance. If you saw hatred, what would you do? If you see hunger, you offer food. If you see hatred, what do you offer? True knowledge. You'd offer love for hatred. If you saw ignorance, you'd offer knowledge. Your job is to make good the deficiency. There is no point in being miserable over what has happened in the last couple of days. The world needs no more misery. Does that make sense? It doesn't need your misery. Again, I've said this before, but the man who founded the school, Leon McLaren, was a remarkably compassionate man. And that compassion at times caused him to suffer. So when he saw the misery in the world, it really affected him. And towards the end of his life, he put this situation effectively to the Shankaracharya. And the Shankaracharya gave the most beautiful answer, which is of absolute benefit to you and I. He said, compassion is an absolutely natural human emotion. But there is compassion under ignorance and compassion under wisdom. And compassion under ignorance is where you're moved by the misery of another to become miserable yourself. And now what has happened is the misery has been doubled in the world. And compassion under wisdom is where you're moved by the misery of another to relieve the misery in the other. And now the misery has been eliminated from the world. So compassion will be an absolutely natural response to the last couple of days. But let it be under wisdom. The Americans don't need your misery, or neither 
Irish people or whoever were killed. They don't need your misery. Does that make sense? I can't remember how many of the births of our children I went to. There weren't 44 of them now. There was only a few of them. But I can't remember whether it was two or three I went to. And I can't remember which child it was. But I remember my wife in one of the childbirths doing the normal, at least what I understand to be the normal things that wives do, like screaming when giving birth and saying the pain is too much and all these sort of things. And I watched the nurses. The nurses were amazing. They were absolutely unmoved by what my wife was saying. They just kept on giving her the instructions. You know, breathe, don't breathe. Get a grip on yourself, Mrs. Mullall. Which I thought was remarkably brave of them. I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> but I just watched them, and they were unbelievable. You couldn't say they were cold-hearted, because they weren't cold-hearted. You couldn't be a nurse and be cold-hearted. You're there to nurse people. So they were full of love but they were absolutely disciplined. They were unmoved by, we call it, the pain or misery of my wife at that moment. That's compassion under wisdom. Now, you might say, well, what can I do at a practical level? Acts such as happened in the last couple of days are acts of immense ignorance. So what is required is wisdom. You should become wise. If you're wise, you will influence millions. Your tears won't influence anybody. Ignorance has to be dissolved. It is ignorant to look at a black man or a Muslim or a Catholic or a Protestant and see them as different than yourself. If Martians were looking down on this earth, they would see us all as humans. But we see differences. But what we need is wisdom or philosophy or true religion which sees unity everywhere. The Shankaracharya was asked and he said, what the world needs now is men and women of steady knowledge and wisdom. And it really does need it. We don't need a great Irish man or a great Irish woman. We need a great man or woman. You know, somebody like Martin Luther King went beyond his blackness. That's why so many whites followed him. He didn't remain a black man. Mahatma Gandhi went beyond being an Indian. That's why so many, again, white people followed him. Mandela isn't black. He isn't a great black man. He's a great man. And the world needs this. And those who practice stillness who study the words of the wise, who meditate, who bring love to their hearts, will transform the subtle world, will change the ideas that do produce all this division and hatred. So, we leave it at that. Thank you. <laughs>